Welcome to the Pathologist Cut Podcast. This RCPA podcast explores the broad medical specialty of pathology and the critical role pathologists play in medicine and healthcare. Welcome to another RCPA podcast. Today we will be talking to Professor Ian Gospel about recent changes to blood donation eligibility in Australia. Professor Gospel is the Medical Director of Donor and Product Safety at Australian Red Cross Lifeblood. Professor Gospel is also Foundation Professor of Infectious Diseases and Microbiology at the School of Medicine, Western Sydney University. Thanks for joining us today, Ian. Pleasure, Laurie. Ian, blood transfusion is such a key procedure in saving the lives of many Australians. What are the risks in having a blood transfusion and how do we make it safer? Yeah, thanks, Laurie. The patient risks are actually um, quite rare today. Um, a lot has happened in the past few decades in transfusion medicine. With respect to the blood-borne viruses, HIV, Hep B, Hep C, risks are far less than one in a million. Platelets are uniquely predisposed to bacterial contamination because they're kept at uh, room temperature. Uh, we get a case of an infection transmission by that every couple of years. We've put new measures in place to reduce this further. With respect to other kinds of reactions you can get from a transfusion, febrile non-hemolytic reactions are probably the commonest, and they're about one in a 1,000, and delayed hemolytic reactions, one in 11,000. And one that's very concerning, transfusion-related acute lung injury, um, we've put in a number of mitigations here and reduced it to four to six cases per annum throughout the whole country. We also consider donor issues um, with the safety as well. So the issues with being a donor might include getting a bruise from the phlebotomy. You can get infiltration, particularly with the plasmapheresis. We actually take more plasma donations than whole blood donations now, Laurie. There's been a big upswing in the demand for intravenous immunoglobulin and other plasma-derived medications. And uh, we've been striving to boost how much plasma um, we get from Australian donors to try and get at least partially self-sufficient in these plasma products. So on the safety thing, we have to get a balance between um, the rights of someone to be a blood donor, and people are often very passionate about this, versus the uh, ability to supply hospitals um, with the blood products that they need for the patients. Can you tell me the background to variant Creutzfeldt-Jakob disease in the UK and what dangers did it create for the safety of the Australian blood supply? Yes, so... Um, Variant Creutzfeldt-Jakob disease, or VCJD, is, uh, was a new fatal neurological disease recognised uh, in the 1990s in people. But there was um, bovine spongiform encephalopathy in cows in the United Kingdom in particular um, in the 1980s and 1990s. And the reason that this arose was because of agricultural practices of feeding um, bovine tissues, including neurological tissues, as part of uh, food for, for the cattle. Uh, unfortunately, this crossed over to humans in 1995, the first human case in a very young person, a 19-year-old. And then there were a spate of cases, and then the connection was made to eating uh, beef from these impacted cattle. And it was realised that probably 180,000 infected cattle probably entered the food chain. 
And so rules were tightened around agricultural feed practices in 1996 to prohibit feeding cattle to cattle, essentially. And this stopped the transmission of uh, bovine spongiform encephalopathy. But the epidemic in the humans was developing at that point and then peaked. It sounds like an extraordinary scientific achievement to have made that connection with beef. Can you just outline that achievement? Yes, it was sort of cutting-edge science at the time, but there was an unexplained spongiform encephalopathy in humans at the same time as a new spongiform encephalopathy in the cattle. And then they were able to determine that the kind of prion that was in the cows was the same as the prion that was in, in the humans and that the pathology of the brain was a spongy form encephalopathy. Um, and there was materially different features from that BCJD in humans to classical CJD um, in terms of what tissues were impacted and that. So it was really um, a lot of strands of evidence were put together to, to make that link. And it was really quite an important link, firstly, to prompt the uh, agricultural and government authorities in the UK to prohibit this feed practice in the cattle and then to uh, model how much of an epidemic we were going to get. So, so what did Lifeblood specifically do to ensure the uh, safety of our blood supply so when this emerged in the UK, um, in parallel with blood services throughout the world, introduced a precautionary deferral. We didn't know whether this devastating new disease might transmit by blood. And there were more and more cases being discovered in the uh, UK in particular, but other countries in Europe. And so in December 2000, we introduced the deferral so that if you spent time in the UK greater than six months between 1980 and 1996, you got a permanent deferral. And pretty much countries throughout the world introduced the deferral. Of course, in the UK, it was very problematic. They, for plasma products, had to import their plasma products. But with respect to fresh blood, they were continually using that because they really had to use something. Now, after we introduced the deferral, this is when we got the reports that there were transfusion transmitted cases. There's three of these and possibly four or five. They're all in the UK. I think this showed that it was just as well that the blood services introduced this deferral as a precautionary measure. And so since those uh, deferrals were brought in, there were no other cases of transfusion transmission of VCJD. The modelling at the time showed that there was potential for a huge epidemic of human cases, but probably very fortuitously that the numbers were very small, 233 reported cases of which 178 were in the UK. And the epidemic peaked in 2000 and the decline was fairly rapid such that it pretty much went away in 2015 with only two cases since that year. So since it's actually gone away, we thought maybe it's time to revisit this deferral and whether the geographic deferral is still needed. Now, because it was very important to get it right and would be very bad if we had a, a transfusion transmit VCJD, we enlisted the assistance of our biostatistics and epidemiologic colleagues at the Kirby Institute at the University of New South Wales. And we also enlisted a colleague from the FDA who had previously done some modelling work on VCJD for the uh, FDA. 
to develop a collaborative project to ultimately submit the case to the blood regulator, which is the Therapeutic Goods Association of Australia. This was funded by a NHMRC partnership grant and the work's actually recently been published in Vox Sanguinis with Hamish McManus as the first author. So this whole process was very involved and it took five years, in fact, Laurie, from um, instigation to actually getting this deferral listed and we did wonder at times whether we were ever going to get there. So in this modelling work, we had a number of variables, and these were the current pre-symptomatic VCJD cases in the UK, looking at the age of at infection and the genotype, the risk of exposure to cows with BSE between 1980 and 1996. We used Australian Bureau of Statistics data to estimate the numbers of British people in Australia that possibly might have been exposed. And the other thing that we used is published data from a sheep model um, of this disease and seeing whether it can be transmitted by transfusion. And the reason we looked at this is we wanted to know what the effect of leukodepletion on the blood was going to do. So in Australia and in most um, blood services that we leukodeplate, because the white cells can cause reactions with the recipient's tissues, causing all sorts of febrile and immunological reactions. And if we take out the leukocytes, that this is rendered much less common. It also has the side benefit that pathogens such as cytomegalovirus are transmitted via lymphocytes. And so if we take out leukocytes, then uh, they won't transmit, basically. And so in the sheep model, if you didn't leukodeplete the sheep blood to transfusion into another sheep, there was a 0.31 chance of transmitting, whereas if you leukodepleted, that was reduced to 0.29%. And so that was like a very big reduction in transmissibility by this leukodepletion step. So we put that in the model because that's leukodepletion is what we do with the Australian blood. By doing this calculation, the bottom line was that our estimate of the risk of transmission in this model, the VCJD by blood from an Australian donor was 1 in 1.4 billion, and this event might happen every 65 years. So this is a um, what you could say is an infinitesimally small risk and the other thing to point out is that this model is probably, we consider it to be a worst case scenario, and there's never been a reported case of VCJD in this country. And so this estimate of one in 1.4 billion is probably an overestimate. And so the risk is, in reality, is probably zero. So anyway, we submitted our argument to the um, TGA, and they have allowed us to remove this deferral on the um, 25th of July, 2022. No, it's a great achievement. So, um, Ian, it was really a risk assessment exercise. Would you describe it with overwhelming statistics showing it was just very, very unlikely? Correct. It really is quite difficult to comprehend what's the difference between one in a million and one in a billion. So, you know, the chance of being hit by you know, an asteroid or something is probably um, in the same realm of likelihood. How do you think these changes will impact the supply of donated blood in Australia? Well, we calculated that about 750,000 folks in Australia um, 
potentially could come along if we removed this deferral and we estimated that perhaps 18,000 donors could come back and might donate 57,000 donations per annum, which is about 1,100 donations per week. So we removed this deferral, as you know, on the 25th of July 2020, and we got an outstanding response and we were quite surprised, I'd have to say. Um, So in the period of the month after that, um, we in fact got 16,669 new donors that would have had that deferral. So we pretty much got up to what we estimated for a year in the first month. Mm -hmm. And in the first week, we got 3,200 blood and 700 plasma donations from uh, these people that would have previously had the deferral. Whole blood donations have plateaued and it looks like maybe it might be one and a half thousand per week. And remember, we thought we might get 1,100 per week. And the plasma, when this deferral was brought in, plasma phoresis donation was unusual, whereas this is actually our biggest line now. It's got more donations for plasma phoresis than there are whole blood donations. Basically, um, there's a thirst in clinical land for IVIG in particular and other plasma-derived medicines. And so we're trying to um, be as self-sufficient as we can with supplying this. So anyway, the donors who have come back are now able to do plasma, and you can do plasma up to every fortnight to a maximum of 26 donations in a year. And it might surprise you, Laurie, that there are enthusiasts that donate with that frequency. It's probably (laughs) fair to say that um, it is unusual, but plasma donors will typically do six or eight or something like that per year. Mm. And so with the whole blood, because you are donating iron to us, um, we don't allow it more frequently than every three months. But you can fit in um, 26 plasmas and four whole bloods in a year if you're an enthusiast. So we're quite optimistic seeing this plasma phoresis curve going up and up and up that maybe um, these new donors have discovered that there isn't another way to donate. And this is really quite an important product to be uh, getting from our um, kind donors. Yeah, it, it sounds very significant to me what you've described, so... Yeah, so we're doing um, 1.6 million donations per annum and yeah. about 55% of plasmas. And the donor panel in total is um, 500,000 people. And we're hoping to grow it to perhaps six, 650, yeah. So do we have enough donations in Australia or are we always living with the need to have more? All of the products have a, a shelf life, particularly platelets, We've extended the platelet shelf life from five days to seven days, and that was one of our other major projects to show that this was a safe thing to do. And that was really very helpful with the platelet inventory. With respect to red cells, the uh, shelf life is 42 days. You might remember there was a campaign that got on the Gruen factor Uh, about the magic number 42, which is six weeks. And so the red cells, you know, comes in uh, various blood groups, ABO and the rhesus, positive and negative. And so um, clinicians do like to prescribe O negative a lot and there are moves afoot to um, perhaps quell their enthusiasm for that. However, 
In general, we actually have a department that matches supply with demand. And so we, we don't want to have a situation where there has to be discussions with our transfusion medicine specialists about whether you can have this or that blood products. With COVID, people's behaviour has changed a little bit. And so you probably noticed that there'd been multiple um, call-outs for people to become blood donors and to donate perhaps uh, more frequently. And that's because our inventory stocks had been uh, at the lower end of the range a bit more than what we like. There is contingency plans in place should it get desperately low, but it's never got to that kind of level. And certainly with this removal of the VCJD deferral, it helped a lot. But sort of the issue with it is really that you need to have fresh platelets and relatively fresh red cells for um, transfusion into people. The FFP, we can freeze it for up to a year. And so um, there's uh, not really inventory problems with that um, because we can address that over a 12-month time frame. With respect to plasma that's used for plasma for fractionation, we're sort of supplying about half of the plasmas that the Australian doctors are prescribing. And we'd like to have it a bit higher than that. You might be surprised to know that most of the world's plasma products are actually coming from the United States and Germany. They're supplying all of the rest of the world, basically, which is very unusual. Um, it also means that if there's only one or two suppliers, that supply chain issues might occur. And so we are very keen to be um, not in that situation. So um, we're boosting the plasma harvest. So there's not a shortage in the short term in terms of having to ration product, but certainly we want to get more plasmas. So you can see that it's kind of a balancing juggling act to make sure that we've got exactly the right amount of blood products in our refrigerators and in our freezers. So has COVID been a challenge apart from the donation side? Has it been a challenge in terms of the virus itself getting into the blood supply? With respect to COVID, um, we were on the case in December 2019. And in January 2020, we thought this is going to be a big one. We, we do active um, horizon scanning for emerging infectious diseases. And when we detect one of these, we have to do a rapid risk assessment as to is it going to transmit or not. Now, of course, when you've got a new pathogen, there's often not a lot of data about this. But the initial assessment was that the risk from transfusion was probably infinitesimally small. And we've had to assess it multiple times during the pandemic. And we've always thought it was quite amazing that even though there's probably billions of cases now, there's been not one single episode of a transmission by blood transfusion. So it seems it's the one way you can't get it. And it wouldn't be someone who's sick who would be the risk donor would be someone who's asymptomatically infected. So with respect to COVID, we've certainly been very busy since 2020. Yes, extraordinary times. And as a final question, which we ask all speakers, do you have any comments for medical students and junior doctors contemplating a career in pathology? Yes, well, obviously quite passionate about pathology. It's very interesting. It's fun. And you also get paid well and the lifestyle is pretty good for yeah. those that consider that. 
Um, there's lots of different kinds of pathologists too, and people need to consider that. Microbiologists, hematologists, immunologists, lots of other ologists, of course, anatomic pathologists. And we work in different areas, not just hospitals, obviously work in lifeblood. Transfusion medicine specialist is lifeblood for a hematologist. And we've got uh, notable microbiologists now in the organisation who work for government and industry. And pathology um, probably don't have to tell you, but makes such a profound contribution to medicine. All the diagnosis is made by pathology and all the advances uh, are pathology. And there's so many research and teaching options and you're always learning new and interesting things. And personally, I've had no regrets about being a pathologist. So that's what I would say briefly to someone who was contemplating it. Thank you. Yeah, no, a great career, great profession. The heart and soul of medicine. That's right. Well, Ian, thank you for a wonderful outline of how we keep our blood supply safe in Australia. No worries. Thank you for inviting me to do the podcast. You have been listening to the Pathologist Cut podcast with RCPA President, Dr. Laurie Bott. To learn more about pathology, check us out on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter.